The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, Senior Writer at Barron's. Thanks so much for joining us. I am delighted to have Daniela Mardorovic as my guest today. Daniela is a CFA charter holder and co-head of multi-sector fixed income at Macquarie Asset Management. Daniela, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you, Lauren. Thank you for having us. So, Daniela, the episode is really going to focus on the bond market. But before we do, I'd love to start our conversation with Moldova. Now, for listeners who aren't up to speed with Eastern European geography, uh, as I have to confess, I wasn't. Uh, That's the former Soviet Republic that borders Ukraine. I believe it's to the east. Moldova gained independence uh, in 1991 um, and has publicly condemned Putin's invasion of Ukraine and hundreds of thousands of refugees have fled uh, there from across the border. You've just returned from Moldova. Can you just briefly describe to us the situation over there? Yeah, I, um, I, I would love to share some of observations uh, we've had there. So I, uh, I attended my sister's wedding, so the reason was entirely uh, wonderful and positive. However, I think as many folks have heard, one of the great concerns post-Russian invasion of Ukraine had been that any continuation of Russians uh, of Russia's agre- aggression would move into Moldova next, uh, most likely. And you know, we have a, a lot of uh, family there as well, and we have a long history of Russian uh, aggression in that part of the world. Um, and I thought. You know, both from a human uh, perspective as well as just understanding the geopolitical landscape, uh, it would be interesting to share with the audience some observations. Uh, for example, uh, the children and, and we, my, my family visited a refugee camp, and the reality there still remains incredibly dire. Uh, it may seem like, uh, from, from sort of our brain's ability to, to maintain presence of the war, uh, the war seems to be a little bit more removed, but refugees com- continue to come into Moldova on a daily basis. Uh, we have uh, displaced families that have been in refugee camps and with uh, Moldovan families now for the past five months, and the situation is incredibly dire. But to add to all that, uh, what I found incredible is uh, the Russians' tactics of ex- expanding uh, sort of the control and the rule of fear in that part of the world. And we've had a lot of, heard a lot of discussions around what Germany is going through from an um, energy perspective, you know, the cold season might be coming up. What's happening happening in Moldova is a bit more severe. For example, we have, um, have had upward of 100 bomb threats, uh, both in the airport. We had one after we, we, we took off. Uh, to come back to the U.S. yesterday, um, as well as uh, children's hospitals would would receive bomb threats in order to 
destabilize and sort of instill fear in that part of the world. But resilience is immense. And I think one of the big messages that we took away from there is Eastern Europe is so intent uh, on, on ending sort of this Russian reign of fear that people are getting ready to collect uh, you know, wood for fire in the winter rather than give in to the blackmail that we've seen for the past several months from uh, Putin's government. So um, I thought that would, would be sort of an interesting and a, a bit of a different perspective for the audience to hear. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I'm sure later in the, the episode, we can talk more about geopolitical risks um, uh, facing the, the markets. But thanks for sharing that. And we uh, wish your family continued safety in Moldova. So we're going to pivot now to, I guess, the topic at hand, uh, you know, the outlook for the bond market, uh, inflation. Last week, we had the CPI report that seemed to be mostly good news. You know, headline and core inflation were less than expected. Um, the bad parts were food and housing inflation, which were still high and climbing. Headline and core inflation came in at 8.5 and 5.9% respectively, and those were both lower than the consensus estimates. So that has a lot of uh, people wondering, and that's fed into this narrative of whether we might have seen sort of peak inflation now and perhaps raising some hopes that central banks might not be need to be quite as aggressive as feared about uh, raising rates. So let me put the question to you. Do you think we've, we've seen peak inflation? What is your sense of this? Yeah, so we, we think peak inflation is likely be behind us. But in terms of making uh, investment decisions, that may not necessarily be the question to ask. From our perspective, what we think is a bit more uh, difficult to assess and where we think the market might be wrong and a bit ahead of itself is the idea that the Fed is ready to pivot. And that may be sort of the, the underlying mistake and that it isn't sufficient to have had peak inflation. And we certainly saw, especially energy prices, come down quite a bit. We saw a lot of negative data come out of uh, China, which continues to support some of this decline in, in energy and commodity prices. But um, inflation has been, you know, the, somebody had once said that the only difference between uh, temporary inflation and systemic inflation is time. Mm -hmm. And we've certainly spent a lot of time with inflation uh, as, as part of our reality. And as a result, we think the discussion should be a lot more centered around how broad the inflationary impetus remains, as well as how persistent. And as you mentioned, while the headline numbers were encouraging, the breadth of still persistently high inflation remains very concerning. And that's why we don't believe that um, sort of calling the peak inflation as behind us uh, is sufficient rationale to also say that the Fed will have to do less. Well, let's talk more about the Fed and interest rates. Uh, before we do that, I'd like to remind the audience that if you have a question, please do submit it through the Q&A feature on your screen. So, you know, while the CPI report perhaps was a step in the right direction, uh, the Fed is also known for following its rule of three, I believe. So we've had just, you know, just one or two sequentially low inflation readings might not be enough for them to feel comfortable uh, inflation is declining. They'll want to see three in a row. So we have got two upcoming, I guess, events in the calendar to keep an eye out for. Uh, September is the next FOMC meeting. 
And uh, I believe also tomorrow we have the release of the FOMC minutes from July. What clues will you be listening for? We are less worried about clues tomorrow as much as um, we think the market has overinterpreted the uh, CPI data as being something that would allow the Fed to be a bit more dovish. I think what will surprise the markets tomorrow is that the minutes will continue to confirm that the vast majority of the FOMC members remain very committed to seeing more concrete signs of a slowdown in the inflationary impulse before getting anywhere near the idea of of Fed hikes, uh, sorry, of, of rate cuts. So as you know, uh, the market is now pricing in two rate cuts in the second half of 2023. We think the market is likely getting a bit ahead of itself and the minutes are likely to remind them of, of, of that reality. Um, Fed speakers since the FOMC meeting have remained very consistent in saying that more needs to be done. In fact, even folks like Kashkari, who, you know, historically have been known as, as being relatively dovish, have brought about the idea of the neutral uh, rate being closer to 4%. Uh, we're currently pricing in a peak rate of uh, 360 or so. Um, so the market is not reading the Fed right, and the minutes will most likely guide it uh, in the right direction. Equally, uh, one of the things that the current sort of hyper-transparent Fed policy uh, is doing is that uh, the, the Fed has used speakers very effectively in intra-meeting periods to message to mm -hmm. the market when it believes it is misinterpreting its signals. So most likely, aside from the minutes themselves, um, we think that the investors should pay attention to Fed speakers. And what they will likely hear is that the Fed is nowhere near ready to pivot to a soft landing is here, we're all happy, let's move on moment. So will you also be keeping a close eye on the Jackson Hole meeting next week? Yeah, and, and this is actually very well aligned with uh, the idea that the Fed has used communication intra-meeting very effectively during this cycle to make it clear to the market what its priorities are. And we would expect the commentary out of the Jackson Hole um, to confirm the fact that the Fed is, is not ready to say mission accomplished. I think for, for many who remember the Bush era uh, mission accomplished moment uh, on, on that uh, uh, carrier, the, the uh, airplane carrier, aircraft carrier. Sorry, my military knowledge is limited. But I think most of us have that very clearly in mind. And what we think we're observing in the market is this very premature sort of winning flag raised uh, in volatility collapsing in spreads collapsing and equity markets effectively exiting a bear market uh, uh, environment, we think the Fed will go through great efforts to say it is too early for financial conditions to ease as much as they have. And frankly speaking, one thing for us to keep in mind is that 
the narrative in the market when spreads were widening, when the equity market was selling off, when the dollar was rising very quickly, the narrative was that the Fed wouldn't need to do so much because the financial conditions uh, were tightening for it, right? That was the reason we all got to this, this place of calm. Well, guess what? The, if if that, that, that logic was true, then the corollary is true as well. Financially conditions, financial conditions have eased dramatically. Volatility has collapsed. Um, risky spreads have come in quite dramatically. Equities have corrected. That is not uh, a financial condition environment that the market, that the Fed wants in order to restrain growth. So either the Fed has to do more or the Fed needs to message to the market that it's a bit too early to call mission accomplished. So you spoke of the narrative in the market and one of the discussions and or I guess narrative you could call it is, you know, whether the Fed will be able to engineer a soft landing. And there's been lots of back and forth, you know, headlines, you know, recession is coming, no recession. Where do you stand on the odds of, of a U.S. recession? And I'm just wondering if we've lost Daniela there. Daniela, can you hear us? So I apologize, we might have a technical issue. I seem to have lost Daniela for a moment. Uh, hopefully she will dial in shortly. If you're still on the webcast, uh, we encourage you to stay on and Daniela hopefully will be rejoining us uh, in a moment. And just a reminder, if you do have questions for um, Daniela, please do send them in. She'll be rejoining momentarily, and then we will be able to pose the questions to her. Lauren, we're back with you. Apologies, we, we lost you for a minute. No problem at all. Welcome back. And uh, I'm sure the audience is relieved to hear you back online again. Uh, I was just saying before you dropped off that there's been a lot of discussion in the market about whether the Fed will be able to engineer a soft landing. We've had headlines going back and forth saying, you know, yes, recession, no recession. Where do you stand on the odds of a, a U.S. recession? What does the outlook look like to you? Respectively, we, we do laugh a bit about this question in the sense that everybody feels very comfortable uh, among the, the economists and investor community to say, oh, it's 60-40 or 50-50, and this is the classic non-committal committal. From our perspective, in order to get from an inflation impulse of uh, 9% to something that is remotely feasible from a long-term perspective, a recession is necessary. Um, so, so we believe that a recession is in, incredibly likely. We don't want to be so, so bold as to say, or, or perhaps showing some humility, we don't want to say 100%, but it is highly implausible that the Fed can accomplish its inflation objectives without significantly adjusting demand. It, it's something that's desirable. It's something that uh, Paul made very clear from a long-term perspective is necessary. Now, saying that a recession is very likely does not equate to a severe recession is very likely or a financial crisis is very likely. And this is where we 
sort of where we sort of find the, the the difference. We think a recession is almost guaranteed in this environment. On the other hand, there are none of the elements that usually cause a financial crisis. And from an investor perspective, it is financial crises that, generally speaking, bring about massive pain. So as much as I've talked quite a bit about the fact that we don't believe that this is quite sort of the, the volatile period of the cycle is quite over yet. We think we'll see more pain to come um, in the fall and winter after this sort of illiquid, quiet time of, of summer. On the other hand, we equally believe that because the cycle has been so short, we as investors and human beings have not had a chance to get in trouble. And because we haven't had a chance to get in trouble, we haven't created the type of excesses that usually lead to a financial crisis. So uh, hopefully that, that gives you a sense of where the nuance from our perspective exists. Mm -hmm, indeed. So let's take all of this discussion and, and make it sort of practical for our audience who are kind of wondering, what does this all mean for my bond portfolio? And when we spoke ahead of today's podcast, you told me then uh, that now is probably as good a time to invest in bonds as we've had in a very long time. So how are you advising your clients to position their portfolios? How does the market look to you now? Yeah, so one of the best things that can happen to bonds is a, as a, a Fed that is very clear in the fact that it won't allow inflation to get away from it. So as a result, we actually think that despite the fact that volatility would be higher, long-term interest rates happen to be the best place in the market to be. So the front end of the market, the short-term interest rates that are still susceptible to the fact that the Fed may have to do more the cycle and so on, that place, that, that, that component of the market may remain volatile. But the long end of the market, you know, saying, you know, take the 10-year around 3%, we've gone a bit below it, we've been a bit above it, is likely to be a fairly stable and well-compensated part of the market. So as a result, it is, as a matter of fact, sort of traditional, well-diversified um, fixed-income funds that invest across the entire term structure that can have exposure to 10-year and 30-year part of the yield curve, that invest in investment grade as long as non-investment grade sort of uh, components of the market. Those are the places that will put investors in the best position to kind of weather what we're seeing today. One of the remarkable things that occurred to me, uh, given I spent a, a really large part of my career in a, uh, in a declining interest rate environment, is diversified uh, investment funds, uh, like, like our flagship bond fund, for example, had a yield of about 5%. Now, mind you, the vast majority of this, this, this type of a fund um, is invested in investment-grade, low-default-risk type of securities, 5%, and compare that with even long-term uh, return expectations for equities that are somewhere in the 7 to 8% area, and this is remarkable. So, you know, one of the things that I had mentioned in a recent conference was that if you were to just express bond investing today in one phrase, it would be bonds are back. 
fixed income is back to having an income component, and that's what traditionally is the most attractive piece. Uh, so this is this is sort of the, the overarching theme. But there is a, a sub-theme to bond investing that may be underappreciated, and that is we believe we will remain in an environment of high volatility at this point in perpetuity. The uh, information access is much greater today than ever was before. Financial assets far outweigh the size of the real economy. And as a result, you've lived in an environment which calls this mutant capitalism in the sense that financial markets have become the tail that wags the dog, right? That wasn't how it used to be, but it is how it is today. So in this environment, you have incredibly short uh, business cycles. And in, in this type of conditions, it doesn't just matter to say, oh, today, you know, investment-grade corporates are attractive, for example, although we do think that we'll, we'll actually have better opportunities to re-engage in that market. Or, oh, today, uh, uh, commercial mortgage-backed securities are attractive. Still, that's not enough. What matters more than any, anything is active, agile investment, taking that volatility and monetizing this. So you add bonds are attractive as an asset class and active, agile investment across the entire universe is compelling. This is how we would suggest investors navigate the fixed income markets going forward. So, Daniela, we're going to switch over now to, to some of the questions that have come in from the audience. Uh, Rick asks, can the bond funds that have negative returns claw back before year end? And also, what range do you see for the 10-year in 2023? Yeah, <laughs> I do get this question quite a bit. Look, uh, there is no dancing around this, this answer. We don't believe we will, uh, we will have a positive year for bonds this year. I mean, if we do, chances are it's because we've had a nuclear crisis, and I would like us to not have a nuclear crisis, um, meaning in order to actually come out of the negative uh, returns for bond funds that we've experienced to date, it, it would really require the long end of the yield curve to decline, decline massively. And for that to happen, that's usually actually a very, very bad sign for the underlying conditions, both, you know, whether it's, it's in the real economy, exogenous risks, or financial risks. So we would say highly implausible we get there. However, we do believe that the returns, and, and we've already experienced over the past a month or so, broad fixed income funds have returned about 2 2.5% already. We, we believe we will continue to see consistent and more stable positive uh, returns going forward. And so the second uh, uh, half of the question, we believe the 10-year is likely to have seen the high already. This wasn't necessarily our view a bit earlier. It is because uh, Powell has messaged a very, very clear reaction function for the Fed consistently enough that we believe that three and a half territory is likely here to stay as the peak for the 10-year. In fact, uh, that, that peak is, is, is likely to be a bit lower. 
on the low end, we don't necessarily think that we can revisit, uh, you know, yields below two and a half percent in any persistent uh, way on a go forward basis, as long as inflation remains sort of somewhat somewhat elevated. So in the next 12 months, more likely than not, we're, we're likely to see a two and a half to, say, low threes type, type uh, territory for the 10 year. Great. So Steve asks, is the fixed income market ignoring quantitative tightening and the subsequent impact on interest rates at its perils? Ah, excellent question. Um, the answer has two, two components. So yes and no, and here's how. Uh, we think the interest rate, the treasury interest rate market is reflecting quantitative tightening appropriately. Quantitative tightening, as we all know, you know, from, from a flow effect, um, has the, the, uh, the same impact as uh, interest rate hikes. So it's a, uh, it, it restricts financial conditions. So in that sense, given where the 10-year is and given what the market is pricing in from a, in a, a treasury interest rate perspective, we think we're priced about right at this stage of the game. We think the front end of the curve will have some issues. We, you know, for those who tend to be bond geeks, uh, yes, there are some issues in the bill market in the very short-term uh, part of the curve. There are some supply and uh, supply and demand sort of disruptions. Uh, volumes are quite light, uh, but for the most part, we think that's priced in properly. What we believe is not priced in sufficiently well at this moment, because the volatility has been high enough that you have to caveat at this moment, is that risk assets uh, probably are not pricing in the, the, the complete effect both of quantitative tightening as well as the continued hikes that we'll see in the market. So by way of an example, investment grade corporates, for example, um, have come back, so the spread, the extra yield that we earn above and beyond treasuries, to about 1.3. So the high we had seen closer to 1.6%. We think this is a bit overdone, uh, similar to high yield. High yield at you know, 400 or so basis points over treasuries or 4% over treasuries, that's, that's a bit more happiness than is appropriate for, for an environment where quantitative tightening is part of the reality. So, so the answer is yes on the treasury side, not so much on the risk side at the moment. So Hal also has a question on the 10-year. He says, why is the 10-year stuck under 3%? Doesn't that indicate the market is convinced that sooner or later the Fed will successfully tamp down inflation and therefore slow the economy? Yep, that's, uh, I, I believe that question answered itself. The 10-year is correct, stuck under 3%, and we did visit 3.5-ish because we've had now a string of 75 basis point hikes, as well as, more importantly, incredibly consistent messaging from the Fed that inflation is the top priority, bar none, um, in making sure that the economy remains uh, well, uh, so it remains healthy, and more importantly, that those parts of the population that are most 
hurt by inflation are receiving the appropriate support from policy. And as long as we don't see any signs that Powell and the FOMC deviates away from that reality, the 10-year or just below 3% will will be behaving sort of well within the appropriate range. Now, where we, where we think that there could be sort of some near-term correction in the second half of the year is if the market becomes overly premature, that it is plausible for the Fed not just to pause, but start cutting rates aggressively uh, in, in 23 and 24, um, if we think that that's overdone, if the inflation stays very persistent, then the risk to the long end of the yield curve increases somewhat. With that said, again, and we will reiterate, it is the consistency of Fed messaging, and that will be key for anyone to monitor what should happen to the long end of the yield curve that dictates what will happen there, what, what, what range we can expect. So time for just one last question. And this, this time it has to do with I-bonds. And Kenneth asks, when the return on I-bonds escalates, does it affect all of your I-bond investments or just the I-bond you're currently buying? Uh, by I-bonds, I'm going to assume we're talking about inflation-protected securities. Um, so when inflation expectations change, it will affect all existing securities, both the new ones and the old ones, because inflation-protected securities behave a bit like floating rate securities, right? In the sense that their coupon will change with the current inflation. So to the extent that inflation declines, uh, then that coupon, what you're getting paid, uh, will decline with it or go higher with it. But there is a second component to I-bonds that I think some folks didn't, didn't sort of fully appreciate and, and it becomes tricky, is that I-bonds do have a fixed component as well, right? That's the real interest rate. And to extend that they are held to maturity, that matters less. But on a day-to-day -day or month-to-month -month basis, because they are long-term securities, they will also be negatively affected by the changes in interest rates, and they will be negatively affected uh, by the changes in inflation expectations. And that's the reason why, whether new or old, tip returns have, have disappointed a lot of investors this year um, as interest rates rose. So real interest rates rose dramatically, and tips or I-bonds have long durations and as a result, prices declined quite a bit, despite the fact that that coupon still receives that adjustment to inflation. So to, to answer this more comprehensively, sort of from a, are I-bonds a good solution today perspective? The answer is, we believe I-bonds served an excellent uh, purpose in portfolios over the last 12 to 24 months. We, however, no longer believe that they're an excellent investment on a go-forward basis. So I-bonds don't benefit from the fact that, for example, you know, investment-grade corporate securities earn another 1.5%-ish uh, 
because they happen to be corporate securities, they're treasuries. So the only benefit you get from I-bonds is just that inflation adjustment. If the Fed is successful, right, that inflation adjustment will go down, and there is very little benefit in additional income in those bonds going forward. So we would be quite cautious, especially for those investors who have significant allocation to I-bonds, we would be cautious about uh, retaining those types of allocations. Great. Well, thank you, Daniela. That's all we have time for today. Uh, thank you to the audience for tuning in. Uh, Daniela, thank you for joining me today. Uh, audience, we hope you can join us again tomorrow. Quinton Fottrell, Managing Editor for Personal Finance at MarketWatch, will talk to Emma Ackerman, Personal Finance Reporter, about her new column, The Rental Trap, why so many Americans pay more than 50% of their income on rent and what can be done to address this crisis. Thank you for listening. Be well and have a wonderful day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.